0: Do you trust your government? And with that in mind, would you trust any government commission today? How would you react to the names of any commissioners assigned to this theoretical commission? Now imagine if former President Trump or President Biden was assassinated in office. How would you feel if the FBI, CIA, and effectively the government solely took control of the investigation? But who watches the watchers? Or in this case, who investigates the investigators? You're listening to Conspiracy Season 1 JFK. What will you believe? last episode, we discovered that all the evidence from the JFK assassination was removed from Dallas that night and sent to FBI headquarters in Washington. The next day, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover sent the newly sworn in President Lyndon Johnson a preliminary report that supported the idea of Lee Harvey Oswald's guilt the government was quickly taking control of the narrative and the investigation. Following the death of Oswald on November 24th, the government used his death as an excuse for an investigation that was independent from the Dallas police, who were being held responsible for Oswald's death. Hoover would talk with Johnson aide Walter Jenkins, stating, The thing I'm concerned about, and so is Katzenbach, is having something issued so we can concern the public that Oswald is the real assassin. Mr. Katzenbach thinks that the president might appoint a presidential commission of three outstanding citizens to make a determination. Unsurprisingly, that same day, Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach wrote this memo to Johnson aide Bill Moyers, In it, he outlines his thoughts on an assassination investigation. It is important that all the facts surrounding President Kennedy's assassination be made public in a way which will satisfy the people of the United States and abroad. That all the facts have been told, and that a statement to this effect be made now. 1. The public must be satisfied that Oswald was the assassin, that he did not have confederates who are still at large, that the evidence was such that he would have been convicted at trial. 2. Speculation about Oswald's motivation ought to be cut off, and we should have some basis for rebutting the thought that this was a communist conspiracy, or a right-wing conspiracy to blame it on the communists. Unfortunately, the facts on Oswald seem about too pat, too obvious, the Dallas police have put out statements on the communist conspiracy theory, and it was they who were in charge when he was shot and thus silenced. Three. The matter has been handled thus far with neither dignity nor conviction. Facts are mixed with rumor and speculation. We can scarcely let the world see us totally in the image of the Dallas police when our president is murdered. I think this objective may be satisfied and made public as soon as possible with the completion of a thorough FBI report on Oswald and the assassination. This may run into the difficulty of pointing into inconsistency between this report and statements by Dallas police officials, but the reputation of the Bureau is such that it may do the whole job. The only other step would be the appointment of a presidential commission of unimpeachable personnel to review and examine the evidence and announce its conclusions. This is both advantages and disadvantages. I think it can await the publication of the FBI report and public reaction to it here and abroad. The Attorney General of the United States, Robert Kennedy, was never consulted about any of these attempts. I'll let you speculate as to why. Deputy Attorney General Katzenbach and Solicitor General Archibald Cox would end up meeting with Johnson's close attorney friend, Abe Fortas. These three men would enlist the help from members of the Council of Foreign Affairs, Yale Law Professor Eugene Rostow, Secretary of State Dean Rusk, and Columnist Joseph Alsop. This group moved to convince President Johnson that the public could misinterpret his plan For a Texas investigation as an attempt to cover up crimes in Johnson's home state. They argued a national commission was needed. Johnson ultimately agreed and one was formed. We know it as the Warren Commission. Heading the commission was Earl Warren, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. It was under Warren's leadership that the Supreme Court ruled on the desegregation issues raised by Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Warren was able to guide the Court to its unanimous decision in favor of Brown, which eliminated the old Jim Crow separate-but-equal segregation laws. There was mutual respect between Warren and Kennedy. The President supported the Warren Court's progressive activism, even in such controversial cases as the June 1963 decision that outlawed compulsory prayer and public schools. On November 29th, the same day President Johnson announced his plans for the commission, Warren was visited by Deputy Attorney General Katzenbach and Solicitor General Cox. Warren was asked to serve as chairman of the Presidential Commission, but he declined, saying, Please tell the President that I am sorry, but I cannot properly undertake this assignment. You see, Warren felt it would be improper for a member of one branch of government to be employed by another branch. But, two hours later, he would receive a telephone call from President Johnson, summoning Warren to his office. Warren's meeting with Johnson is a much-told story about how Johnson appealed to his patriotism, reducing him to tears, and confiding that the assassination might have international implications that could threaten the lives of 40 million Americans. Johnson's first choice for his commission had actually been Alan Dulles, but he needed Warren to at least deflect any future criticism of the investigation from the liberal establishment. The stories of this encounter have at times become so grandiose that I imagine it going down like this. I have never known anyone who actually believed that I was enough until I met you. Mm -hmm. And then you made me believe it, too. So, uh, unfortunately. I need you. And you need me. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Stop it. Stop saying that. You need someone to take care of you. No, I don't. Everybody does. I'm gonna need you more than you need me. That's okay. No, it's not. It isn't fair. Places to go. You'll go there. I just may have to carry you. plausibly, it went down as described by Warren biographer Jack Pollock. The president spoke gravely of the desperate need to restore public confidence. He hinted darkly at the possibility of dangerous international repercussions. He invoked Warren's self-duty of and patriotism. By the end of the interview, he had succeeded in making Warren feel that to refuse the president would be a betrayal of public trust. As a man-to-man persuader, Lyndon Johnson had no equal. His trump card was, Mr. Chief Justice, you were a soldier in World War I. There's nothing you did then that compares to what you can do now for your country. As your commander-in-chief, I am ordering you back into service. In an internal memorandum written on February 17, 1964, Commission Attorney Melvin Eisenberg mentioned what Warren told fellow commissioners, that he had been pressured by Johnson. Eisenberg wrote, The president stated that rumors of the most exaggerated kind were circulated in this country and overseas. Some rumors went so far as attributing the assassination to a faction within the government wishing the presidency assumed by President Johnson. Others, if not quenched, could conceivably lead the country into a war. No one could refuse to do something which might help prevent such a possibility. He placed emphasis on the quenching of rumors and precluding further speculation. And so, Chief Justice Earl Warren reluctantly agreed to chair the commission. Later that same afternoon, Johnson signed Executive Order 11130, creating the Seven-Man Commission, officially to be titled, President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. Officially, the commission had a dual purpose. One, to find the facts of the Kennedy assassination. The other, to calm public fears and suspicions both in the US and internationally. When evidence was presented to the commission that supported this duality of purpose, there wasn't a problem. But since so much of the evidence contradicted the official assassination theory, and called into question certain government institutions, it leaves many questions, especially which purpose became more important to the commissioners. The commission was ran by seven men. One would hope that the men chosen for such an important task would be above reproach, or at the very least, these men would approach things with an open mind uninformed opinions, and be dedicated to uncovering the truth, no matter where that truth led or what it revealed. Like I said, one would hope. Along with Chief Justice Warren, these are the six other commissioners. Representative Hale Boggs, a Democrat from Louisiana. He would become the most vocal critic among commission members. Boggs was frustrated with the panel's total reliance on the FBI for information, something I believe we can all relate to. Boggs would ultimately become the topic of his own conspiracy on October 16, 1972, while on a military junket flight in Alaska. His plane disappeared, and despite a massive search, no trace of the airplane or of Boggs has ever been found. Senator John Sherman Cooper a Republican from Kentucky. Like Boggs, he would later voice dissatisfaction with the commission's single-bullet theory, stating he was unconvinced. Now, the next name on the list is by far the most perplexing. Alan Dulles. Dulles had been fired as director of the CIA by Kennedy following the botched Bay of Pigs invasion. Today, it seems more than ironic that Dulles would have been selected to sit in judgment on Kennedy's death. Dulles also was tightly connected to the military, not only because of his years with the CIA, but because of his service in World War II, and we now know that Dulles withheld CIA information from the commission, particularly concerning assassination plots between the CIA and organized crime. What else might have Dulles withheld? You see, Kennedy and Dulles didn't get along. Their views on foreign policy were vastly different. I mean, Kennedy fired the guy. It's highly suspect and quite ridiculous that Dulles was on the commission, let alone one of those in charge of investigating who killed Kennedy and why. The next name on the list, former President of the United States, Gerald Ford. At the time of the commission, he was a Republican congressman from Michigan. Ford's role would end up being recognized by most researchers as the FBI's spy on the commission. And this is confirmed by a memo dated December 12, 1963, from Cartha DeLoach, who was a close aide to Director Hoover. In it, he noted I had a long talk this morning with Congressman Gerald Ford. He asked that I come up and see him. Ford indicated he would keep me thoroughly advised as to the activities of the commission. He stated, This would have to be on a confidential basis. However, he thought it should be done. He also asked if he could call me from time to time and straighten out questions in his mind concerning our investigation. I told him, by all means, he should do this. He reiterated that our relationship would, of course, remain confidential. The sixth member was John J. McCloy. He had been coordinator for the Kennedy administration's disarmament activities since 1961. Another striking thing about this commission member was that he was a ranking member of the Council on Foreign Affairs and also helped build the U.S. intelligence establishment after the war. In commission arguments over the single bullet theory, it was McCloy who finally proposed that the evidence supporting this theory be called persuasive a term all members finally agreed upon. And the last member, Senator Richard B. Russell, a Democrat from Georgia. He was chairman of the powerful Senate Armed Services Committee and carried much clout on Capitol Hill, which was usually employed to further the aims of the Pentagon. Russell also sat on the Watchdog Subcommittee on CIA Oversight widely regarded as one of the most intelligent Senators, became the first Warren Commission member to publicly question its conclusions. In a 1970 Washington Post article, Russell said he had come to believe that a criminal conspiracy had resulted in Kennedy's death. The Senator even worked with assassination researcher Harold Weisberg in an effort to obtain Commission transcripts. In a court affidavit, Weisberg stated Privately, Senator Russell told me that he was convinced that there were two areas in which the Warren Commission members had been deceived by federal agencies who were responsible for investigating the assassination of President Kennedy. These two areas were, one, Oswald's background, and two, the ballistics evidence. The information shows all the Commission members had long-standing ties to both the military and intelligence establishments of the United States. They also were men accustomed to the delicacy of dealing with highly sensitive political issues. As politicians, they were versed in the art of government and experienced in handling or neutralizing difficult problems through politics, not necessarily solving them. The creation of this commission also stayed the hand for any independent congressional investigations. In explaining the formation of the commission, the Dallas Morning News commented, creation of the Presidential Commission appeared certain to head off several congressional inquiries into the slaying of President Kennedy. Now that Congress was deferring to the Warren Commission, the only remaining obstacle to contain the investigation by federal hands was the Texas Court of Inquiry. Initially, President Johnson had requested the convening of the court. The day of Kennedy's funeral, he told Hoover he had met with Wagner Carr, the Attorney General of Texas. That afternoon, Carr held a press conference announcing that the Texas authorities would hold an investigation. Steps were taken to shut down this investigation and persuade Carr to cooperate with the commission. And so, on December 6th, Carr released a press statement announcing that the state of Texas was postponing its inquiry into JFK's death until the Warren Commission completed its investigation. Per the agreement, the Texas Court of Inquiry would have access to the FBI report but could not publish it. Court representatives also have the right to be present at the Commission's closed-door hearings and direct questions to the witnesses, to have access to depositions, and to see the final draft of the Commission's report. This arrangement was really a trade-off. The federal authorities would allow for nominal Texas participation in the investigation, and Carr, after the Commission's findings were made public, would use the published report as his excuse for not proceeding with the state's inquiry. On December 5, 1963, the Commission held its first executive session. It was devoted to organizational matters and other issues that were on the members' minds. When the session turned to the selection of a chief counsel, Warren quickly offered the name of Warren Olney. As head of the Justice Criminal Division, Olney had a shared history with FBI Director Hoover, but Hoover despised Olney. As one FBI agent remarked, Olney was the only guy who had balls enough to stand up to Hoover. Two days before the Commission's first executive session, Hoover learned through Katzenbach that Warren was serious about pushing Olney's name forward. The Acting Attorney General wanted to know if the FBI had any ideas on how to block this appointment. Olney's reputation as a boat rocker unnerved Katzenbach. He was so worried at the prospect of Olney steering the commission that he planned to get his own man from the criminal division, Howard Willens, to serve on the staff to keep an eye on Olney. It was certainly no radical departure from long-standing traditional Washington guidelines for an appointed chair... To place his own man at the head of a commission staff. In discharging his heavy responsibilities in the Kennedy assassination, it was incredibly important that Warren have total confidence in his general counsel. He had to be someone who was familiar with the processes of government, he had to have some experience in dealing with agencies like the FBI, Secret Service, and CIA, and would have to assemble a staff that could do most of the commission's heavy lifting. On every count, given his record and experience, Olney would have been a great pick for the job. And things may have been different had Olney served as chief counsel. And it's very likely that the Warren Commission report would have been more accurate, credible, and not so disingenuous. When Warren put forward Olney's name before the commission, Ford was the first to voice concerns. The congressman thought they should look for someone without close ties to government. In reality, Ford was worried that Olney was too close to Warren. McCloy agreed, urging that they open the search by considering other candidates. It just so happened that McCloy had prepared his own list of names. One of which was J. Lee Rankin, McCloy's unspoken choice. With the commissioners at an impasse, it was agreed that an all-Republican subcommittee composed of Warren, Dulles, Ford, and McCloy would meet that same day after lunch and select the chief counsel. They would emerge with Rankin as the choice. Warren would give the impression that Rankin had clearly been the best man for the job. However, Ford secretly reported to DeLoach that the selection of Rankin had not occurred without a fierce battle. According to Ford, During the subcommittee's deliberations, Warren fought hard for Olney, only to back down when Ford and Dulles threatened to resign from the commission if the chairman insisted on this selection. Hale Boggs also told Warren that he could not work with Olney. The choice of Rankin, a conservative Republican, was greeted at FBI headquarters with joy. When the Justice Department requested a pro-forma name check on Rankin before he was offered the position, The director noted, relations between Rankin and the Bureau have been excellent. As U.S. Solicitor General from 1956 to 1961, Rankin had been the FBI's lawyer in cases that went before the Supreme Court. He knew Hoover on a first name basis, and, unlike Olney, there's no indication that there was ever any animus or clashing of wills between the two. During the duration of the commission, Rankin had a talent for steering the commission away from problems with the FBI and CIA and successfully guiding the investigation toward that predetermined destination that was laid down in the November 25th Katzenbach Memo. The direction that Rankin followed for nine months took the path laid out by Hoover, and it pointed to Oswald, and only Oswald as the assassin. Next time on Conspiracy. We dive into the behind-doors workings of the Commission and dissect the Commission's investigation and conclusions. What will you believe? This is an Aurora Boris, Inc. production.